You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter. We are continuing in our study of this, uh, of this letter. With uh, a couple more weeks left, we're going to be winding up here. And this morning's text is uh, the last part of um, chapter 4. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 12 through 19. You know, in, intuitively, we know that, that suffering is not a part of God's original design for His children. There was no suffering in the garden before sin entered the world through Adam, and there'll be no suffering in the new heavens and the new earth when all sin will be removed from the world. But between those two realities, the garden on one side and the new heavens and new earth on the other, we have to deal with sin and the suffering that comes with it. And uh, suffering comes into our lives you know, for, for many reasons. We suffer, Jesus said, because we live in a world that's fallen. You know, in the world you'll have tribulation, Jesus said, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And sometimes we suffer because of our own actions. You know, Galatians chapter 6 says, as a man sows, the same shall he reap. And if we sow to the flesh or the sinful nature, we reap the results of that. And that usually involves a little bit of pain. Sometimes our suffering is, well, it's the Lord actually. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Endure hardship as discipline, for you have a Father that loves you, and because He loves you, He disciplines you. But the suffering that Peter's been talking about thematically through this whole letter, actually, is not any of those. This suffering is primarily because a person is loyal to Jesus. Fundamentally, the suffering is because of being loyal to Jesus in a world that is rebelling against him. And this loyalty is not a perfect loyalty by any means, but it is, and the reason I say fundamental, it's fundamental to our identity. And out of this loyalty comes a desire to obey God, obedience. And when the will of God and the will of the world collide, it is in our heart as Peter spoke in Acts 5, we would rather obey God than man, even if it produces suffering in our life. Peter calls this suffering that comes out of obedience, suffering for doing good, chapter 2, verse 20, suffering for doing right, chapter 3, verse 14. And in our text today, he calls it suffering as a Christian, verse 16, and in verse 19, suffering according to God's will. So what I want to do this morning is read the text. Three points this morning I will share with you out of that. Let's begin verse 12. I'm reading from the New International Version. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, 
It should not be as a murderer, thief, or any kind of criminal or evildoer, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For, and he's still talking about suffering, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what shall the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Three points this morning. The first one is this. Don't be surprised. That's the first thing that Peter says here. Don't be surprised. In spite of the overwhelming experiential evidence most Christians in the Western world still believe subconsciously anyway, that suffering is abnormal and an anomaly in a Christian's life. And and if we do happen to suffer, we should deal with it as quickly as possible and get back to our normal life for nothing good can come out of it. To the contrary, Peter says suffering is actually more normal for a faithful believer and that, yes, there is something good that can come out of it through faith in God. And if you don't believe that, if that's not a part of your personal biblical theology, then suffering will inevitably produce confusion in you, anxiety in you, even anger. God, why are you doing this? Depression. How have I failed God? Even the assumption maybe that God has abandoned you or somehow is punishing you. And those erroneous beliefs, those false beliefs, are then used by Satan to cause you to to basically back down on your conversations with non-believers, to draw back from your walk with the Lord and even fall away from the Lord and from the church. And that's why Peter begins this, this section with the very pastoral, dear friends. Actually, the Greek is beloved. He's basically saying this, I love you guys, I have you in my heart. And because I love you, I have to tell you this, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal. Don't be surprised about it. Now, Peter makes it very clear. He's not talking about suffering for unrighteousness' sake here. He's not talking about suffering as an evildoer. He makes that very clear in verse 15. And, and nor is he really talking about the suffering just simply for doing the right thing. He is talking about a kind of suffering that's unique to Christianity. Verse 16, he calls it suffering as Christians. And this kind of suffering was very, very challenging to believers in in, in Peter's day. First of all, you have to realize this, that Christianity was the new kid on the block as far as religions go. And you were very much the outsider in your culture, and you were despised for not going along with everybody else and worshiping the gods that everybody else worshiped. It was kind of an honor and shame-based culture, and so there was a lot of shame when you went against the majority, the vast majority. And that's, of course, why Peter tells them, he says, you know, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. This is not a reason for shame. Praise God that you bear Christ's name. Secondly, not only were you the new kid on the block, but you were the minority. 
And, and you stuck out like a sore thumb in the ancient world. It was impossible for you simply to blend into culture where nobody would pay much attention to you. You could just kind of go on and do your own thing and have your own God. No, you couldn't. You stuck out like a sore, sore thumb. You know, up to recently, Christian in our country could blend in very, very easily because historically our country has been largely influenced an ethic, and, and therefore has been very accepting of Christianity, Christian, Christian ethics, Christian morals. So the, there really hasn't been a fiery ordeal, culturally speaking, for a believer. Yes, some of us have suffered, of course, in the context of our relationships. Sometimes choosing to follow Jesus costs you in that area. But from a society point of view, not much as like other parts of the world where it's very costly to be a Christian. But I think all of that is kind of starting to change a bit right before our very eyes. Well, I think really more than we actually realize. Biblical Christianity, I'm not talking about cultural Christianity again, but biblical Christianity is more and more viewed as a hindrance, if you will, to the kind of group thinking that many people believe is necessary for our society to progress. And it may not be long until biblical ideas actually become punishable offenses nationwide, as they already are, by the way, in many cities in our nation. City ordinances. Certainly we are seeing the precursor to that with the gender pronoun mandates in schools and colleges, where if you don't use the right words, you're out. I think the day is coming where you're going to be forced to make a decision as to whether or not you will use fabricated gender pronouns in your workplace or be threatened or be terminated or be forced into a prolonged court battle, as many have been. The window of religious exemption, religious objection, to a federal government mandate is almost closed. It certainly has been, as you know, for bakers or for florists in certain states like Colorado or Washington or Oregon. Their lives have been ruined because of it. And it's probably not going to be too far in the distant future where the IRS will start rescinding 501c3s from churches who hold to a biblical view of gender and marriage. So I think, really, a fiery trial is descending upon us. And not just over the gender issue. That's only one of the many flames of this fire. But Peter says here, it won't destroy us. It can't. He says it won't destroy us. It's actually, he says, going to refine us if we keep our hope in God, if we keep our faith in God. Because he says here, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to what? To... Is it up there? <laughs> no, you don't like that word, do you? <laughs> you want to bless you, right? <laughs> the word test is it, it, here in the Greek means to prove you, to prove your genuineness. You might remember from earlier in the study over in, in chapter 1, Peter uses kind of the similar metaphor. He says, in verse 7 of chapter 1, these trials or this suffering has come upon you so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, 
and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So in both chapter 1 and in chapter 4, Peter speaks of trials and sufferings as a Christian, as a fire that has the potential to refine and purify our faith. And just like the heat of the fire creates separation between the gold and the dross, trials have a way of creating separation between our trust in Jesus and other things we're trusting in that we don't know about. We call those heart idols. And we all have them to one degree or another. A heart idol is any good thing that we make an ultimate thing in order to have a sense of wholeness and happiness in our life. For the rich young ruler, that was wealth, wasn't it? He thought he was following the Lord. He even said to Jesus, all these things, the law, I have followed from my youth. I mean, I've been one obedient person. I've been following the Lord. The Lord is first. Jesus said, go sell everything you have and come follow me. And he went away, what? Sad. He couldn't do it. Why? Because what he was functionally trusting, where he got his sense of worth and value and security was in his wealth, not in Jesus. Think of the tremendous invitation that was. Sell everything you have and come follow me. Come follow the Messiah. The Messiah. What an invitation that was. But he couldn't. He couldn't do it. For Abraham, it was a child that was his idol. You know, for years and years and years, he trusted God to fulfill his promise to give he and Sarah a child. They were beyond the years of, of childbearing. But God had made the promise, and so he continued to trust year after year after year. And then, 99 years old, she's pregnant. Miracle. Nine months later, here's the miracle baby, Isaac. Now, when you wait for something that long, when you hold on to the promise of God like that, and a promise that defies biological fact, you're overjoyed. And Abraham, Abraham loved Isaac. As years went by, he loved him more. Eventually, he loved Isaac too much. Because Isaac was bringing to Abraham what only God should. And he didn't know it. He never knew it. Until God said, take that boy up, Moriah, and place him on some wood. Then Abraham knew who he really loved more. And it proved out to be the Lord. For Jacob, his grandson, what he needed, what was in his, his heart idol was affirmation. He needed to be approved more than anything else. He needed people to give him a blessing affirmation, approval. Jacob, Jacob's life was one long struggle to get, you know, that blessing. He struggled with Esau to get it from his father, Isaac. Remember the biblical story? He struggled to get it, you know, uh, through Rachel. He just had to have eight Rachel. Just had to have her. Even Laban tricked him twice. He just had to have Rachel. My life won't be complete until I have Rachel. I need that affirmation. You know, years later, he, he, he did get that blessing. It was from God, though. The Lord came to him and, uh, in a dream, and he wrestled with the Lord. And in that dream, 
You might remember what he says, I won't let you go until you give me that blessing. And he got it. And it changed his life. They changed his name because of it. He went from being Jacob to being known as Israel. You know, we don't see those, those idols in our heart, so oftentimes we don't think that we have them. Sometimes it's success. Other times it's comfort. Other people, you just have to be in control. Some people it's image. Some people it's career. It's anything, any good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. We don't think we have them until... We are tested with their removal. And then we go, ah, there it is. Because the trial always brings us to the fork in the road. Where we see our divided loyalty and we repent and we take the road called Jesus. And we wouldn't have seen it or we wouldn't have made that decision to choose Jesus had it not been for God's purifying work in the trial. So you see, suffering is, is not a sign of God's absence, but a sign of His purifying presence in our life. And that's why Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you. Don't be surprised. And then he says something even more amazing. Rejoice! Rejoice in your suffering. Look at what he says. But, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so you may be overjoyed when its glory is revealed. And if you're if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, this is probably, I don't know, it's in the top five of the most counterintuitive statements made in, in all of Scripture. I mean, this is like oil and water. Rejoicing and suffering do not go together. They don't mix. They're, they're, they're polar opposites. And I think it's important to be clear. Peter is not saying enjoy your suffering. He's saying rejoice in it. If you're enjoying it, that's a bit... Psychotic. <laughs> he says, though, rejoice in it. And that's different. What does he mean by that? Well, let's start by looking, you know, at the two reasons he gives for rejoicing in suffering. There's, first of all, promise to future joy. He says, rejoice in suffering so that you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. That's referring to Christ and his second coming. So there's this exceeding joy that's coming. That if you rejoice in a trial now, that you will be the recipient of this exceeding joy. The second thing is a present blessing. He said, if you rejoice in your sufferings, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's a present blessing. Let's take that one, that one first. If you're suffering because of loyalty to Jesus, it means you belong to him. And there is something that happens when that loyalty is challenged and tested, and you remain faithful even if it costs you something. There's something spiritually that happens then. We probably all have a story of this in our own lives along these lines where our loyalty to Jesus was, was tested. One of the first for me happened the summer after my freshman year in college. I'd gotten a bit more serious about being a follower of Jesus, uh, but at the same time, I tried to keep all of my old friends who were not following me in the faith, I might add. And it produced a lot of instability in my life for nearly nine months, trying to keep my old friends and trying to follow Jesus. And I didn't have any community, and so I absolutely floundered. But by the grace of God, by the end of that school year, 
I made a clean break from sin. Unfortunately, none of my other friends followed me. Some looked down on me, others ostracized me. I can still remember just this visual in your head. You know how you just remember some things. I can still remember sitting in my pickup on a hill, looking at all my friends at an outdoor party, celebrating the end of our, of our sophomore year. And I, I realized at that moment, I was just sitting there, I am all alone, but never more close to Jesus. And it produced something. Something happened right then. The Spirit of glory and of God rested upon me. It produced an incredible joy and freedom. I had just suffered the loss of many friendships, but I had gained a superior joy, that joy of loyalty, the joy of, that, of God's approval in that loyalty. See, when our loyalty to Jesus is proven to be true, there's just this, this palatable closeness you experience, a sense of glory. Again, the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. It's not, it's not the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, but it's the blessing and the glory that rests upon you. There's a sense of it. It's palatable. You know it. So you can tell yourself all day long you're all about Jesus. You know, like Peter, you can say, though all else forsake you, I will never. Right? Right? I'll be loyal to you, Jesus, but you really don't know. You don't know until Jesus is arrested in the garden, right? You don't know that. Peter, Peter failed at that first test of loyalty, but oh, how glorious was the moment when it was tested a second time. And this time he didn't back down. He boldly proclaimed the word of the Lord, preaching that first and second sermon after the church was born. And it cost him. He was arrested. He was flogged. He was commanded to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. The Scripture says in, in Acts 5 that the apostles, including Peter, left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Now, it's that same blessing that Peter wants these, his the recipients of this letter to, to enjoy. And this is why he urges them earlier in chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Why? Because he wanted them to experience the spirit of glory and of God resting upon them. That's the present blessing. You will never be alone in your loyalty. Never. And it'll always be worth it. Always. But there's also a future blessing that Peter talks about. A future joy related to suffering for Christ. So back to that story. I'd just come sitting in the pickup. I was going to get out and say goodbye to my friends. And I wasn't coming back. I knew God wanted something else for me. You know what? I didn't even get out of the truck. I just drove away. And as I did... I began thanking God and worshiping and rejoicing. I think it's the first time in my life I discovered a joy, the joy of suffering, through which I could gain more of Christ. I wouldn't trade it for anything, and I still wouldn't. I've experienced that many times since, and I'm sure many of you have also. If you rejoice in suffering for his name, it means you treasure him above everything else. 
Someone once said, in fact, I read it this week, if you're not treasuring Christ, you're using him. He's a means to an end. Now, he's got all kinds of blessings, but if that's why you're in it, it's for the wrong reason. It's to treasure him. We sang this morning, you're beautiful. For no other reason than you're glorious, you're beautiful, you're, you're marvelous, you're, you're everything. That's Christianity. All the other quid pro quo junk out there, you do this for me, I do this for you, that's junk. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. It's being peddled. You know, put the quarter into slot, pull it down, and you get something from God, right? No. That's dishonoring to the one who shed his blood and died for you. See, if you treasure him above everything else in your life, it, it is a sign that you will be the recipient of a, of, a, of a superior joy, even a greater joy that I had sitting on the front seat bench of that truck driving away. An infinitely greater joy that is going to be made available to you at Christ's second coming. He says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory. What is that overjoy? It is the exceeding joy of the faithful servant in the parable of the talents whom the master says, well done. Come and enter the what? Joy of your master beyond human joy. Entering in and experiencing and sharing with the very joy of God. That's what's at the end. So Peter says, just to make sure that his audience understands what he's talking about, he says, if you suffer, should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal. Criminal's actually evildoer. Or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God, you bear that name. Now notice verse 17. For, for, that means what? We're still talking about the same thing, aren't we? We're not switching subjects here. We're still talking about Christian suffering. Suffering because of loyalty to Jesus Christ in a world that is opposed to him. For, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, same subject, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what does Paul or Peter mean here when he says it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God? What does he mean by that? Have you ever heard that before? Some preacher's preaching along, and all of a sudden, it's time for judgment to begin. And where does it begin? In the house of the Lord, right? What, 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 what is that? Well, that takes a little explaining. Are you ready? Okay. God's household, of course, refers to God's people, right? And in particular, the church. Remember over in, in chapter 2, Peter describes the church as a house or a building, right? Or a temple um, that's made up of living stones, individual believers, all fitly framed and joined together, setting on the, what, the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. So the house of God is the church here. It's God's people. And God says, okay, it's within that house that judgment is going to begin. 
Now, if you have a basic understanding of Christianity, you're saying to yourself right now, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. I thought Jesus bore our judgment. Yeah, so why does judgment begin with God's house? Why does judgment begin inside God's household? Judgment should begin outside God's household, not inside. Now, certainly the New Testament teaches, and Paul summarizes in Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemning sentence. There is no guilty sentence for you for your sin because Christ took that for you on the cross as your substitute. That is the gospel. We will never be judged for our sins. But that doesn't mean we'll never stand before the ultimate judge and give an account for our lives. Romans 14, 10. For we will all Stand before God's judgment seat. So then, each of us, all, each of us, will give an account of ourselves to God. But see, here's the difference. When we face the ultimate judge in the future, it's not going to be for the condemnation of our sin. Jesus already took that. It's going to be instead for the evaluation of our life, our works for potential reward for faithfulness, for loyalty. It's a loyalty reward. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about this. But, 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 that's all in the future. This judgment Peter's talking about is in the present. He said the time is right now, not in the future. Now for judgment to begin in the house of God. It's time right now. So what's he talking about here? What is this present judgment that is now? And it's only happening to the household of God, nobody else. Notice the, the verse, verse 17 again. If it, or judgment, begins with us, present tense, what will the future outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, in God's future final judgment of all humanity, think about it for a moment. All the verses that talk about that speak of a great evaluation that's coming, where God will evaluate those who believe the gospel and those who do not or have not. There's going to be a, a dividing, if you will. Jesus taught in the parables. He's going to do what? Separate the wheat from the tares, right? He's going to separate the bad fish from the good fish. Matthew 13, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate those who with their words only said, Lord, Lord, from those who actually did the will of the Father. Matthew 7, he's going to separate those who know him or think they know him right? From those that he says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's going to be a separation. Now Peter says that in the separation, in some sense, this future separation is happening right now through fiery trials. Suffering among professing Christians for loyalty to Jesus is really sorting out who's the true believers and who's not. It's sorting out those who will persevere and those who will fall away. It's sorting out Christians who are really Christians and those who are Christians in name only. And there's a good amount of those in the body of Christ today. Not in the official, but in Christendom, I should say. And it's part of the problem. It's why the church is weak. You can't be strong unless you're converted. The Holy Spirit lives within you. That's what makes a strong church. 
So there's a lot of people that are Christian in name only that really, really aren't true biblical Christians. He's, he's sorting that out right now. That's what Peter says. He sorts it out through, through trials. So just like God, God purifies us as individuals through a refining fire of Christian suffering, He also purifies His church the same way. Separate who's really a believer and who's not. And you know what else He does? He shows someone who thinks they're a believer that they're not so they can become a believer. Because the person who is in the most dangerous, precarious position in all of the units right now is someone who thinks that they are actually a believer and they are not truly converted. They are not born again. They've adopted maybe the outward mannerisms of Christianity or find themselves parked inside of a church on Sunday morning, but they are not a Christian. They've never repented. They've never truly believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They don't know even what the gospel is, but they're in church. They are in the most dangerous position. And it's up to us who understand that to reach out to folks in that category, to reach out to them, to help them understand, no, you're missing the gospel of grace. You don't understand this. I know you go to church and you do this, 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 and this, and this. But you're like the person who said, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And he says, I didn't know you because I don't know you because you do this, this, and this for me. I know you because you believed in my son. Again, what God starts out in the household of God will one day extend to all humanity. Look at what he says. If it begins with us, yeah, I was just thinking this when I was studying this week. Now, this would be one of those verses that if I was like kind of just skipping around and maybe topically teaching, I would never visit this. I mean, I would, but I'd be putting it off for a while. You can understand why, right? I mean, I just love how you guys are so enthusiastic about this message this morning. It's really doing a lot for me. It's a good thing I'm not like Jacob looking for your affirmation. But it's part of God's Word. And you see, this is one of the great problems that we have in the body of Christ. Unless someone's faithful to teach through all the Scriptures to give you the full meal, you are deficient. If all you ever hear about is uh, just the love of God, how much God loves you, but you never hear about the holiness of God, you know, it's, it's like eating a deficient diet. You're unhealthy. You don't have a a right view. Romans 11 says what? Behold the goodness and the severity of God. See both. God's holiness, God's love, God's justice, God's grace. God's righteousness, God's mercy. Behold both. And when you teach through the Bible verse by verse, you're forced into doing that as we are this morning. We're looking at, a, we're looking at some, some pretty tough verses here. Here's, look at in this verse even in particular. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And the idea here is this. If, if the purifying, purifying fire of God's judgment is accomplished through trials for believers... What shall the condemning fire of God's judgment be like for unbelievers? If the fire of God's purifying love is so intense that even the righteous feel its heat in trials, what will the fire of God's consuming holiness feel like to 
the sinner who does not have the Savior. Peter expands on that. He says, verse 18, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, hard to be saved here doesn't mean it was hard for God to save you. Nothing is, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Peter's not suggesting that salvation is difficult for God to achieve and that we're just barely saved through the work of Jesus on the cross. Not at all. No, no. He's acknowledging that suffering for loyalty to Christ makes it difficult to remain faithful to Christ and make it to our final salvation. Thank God we have a God who's promised to keep us, to preserve us, but that doesn't make it easy along the way. We'll be tempted to quit, to step back, to draw back. Even the most righteous person, the most faithful person will have doubts and find it difficult to endure to the end, but we will. We will because God has promised to keep us and to safely deliver us. And Jesus Christ said, I'll not lose one who has come to me. But it's still not an easy road. This is the valley of the shadow of death. One day we'll be in the house of the Lord. All this will be over. You've got to realize that right now. Christians in the Western world, we haven't experienced this this much as our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And even so, think about it. Here we live in a place that's easy to be a Christian relatively, and yet many, many have, uh, have turned away. Deconstructed. Fallen away. And if it's that hard for the righteous to be saved, to faithfully endure to final salvation, what will become of the ungodly? Now, here's the takeaway from this. God is much more concerned about our sanctification and our purification than we are. Than most modern Christians are. He is, he is he's committed to this. He wants us to be holy and set apart to Him. Not worldly and accepted by our culture. Why are we working? Why is the church working so hard to be accepted by culture? We should be only concerned with what God thinks of us. He, he, he wants this so much that He refines us. He loves us so much because He knows the closer your heart is to Him, the greater your joy is in Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. Oh, I finally found it. Nothing is better than this now in any eternity. But He wants this so much, He refines us like, like gold. And one of the ways He refines us is by allowing us to experience the heat of the world's animosity against Him. That's how much He wants His church. That's how much He wants His bride to be pure. That's what he wants for every one of us. Now, he loves you. He'll forgive you a, a 10 million times over all the way to the end. But he forgives you so you can be holy, Amen. so you can be cleansed, so you can live for him, not so you can live any way you want. He wants his bride to be pure. Hear me, please. And make the adjustments you need to make. Repent where you need to repent. Shore up the foundations that are crumbling. 
and follow him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And if he's ever said to you anything, if you've ever felt, man, I shouldn't, shouldn't, then don't. Don't. Follow him. You'll never be disappointed in giving him the loyalty that he deserves. So how should we respond, Peter says here, to this kind of suffering? Entrust yourself to God in suffering. Look at verse 19, last point, point three. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And that word commit there, it's actually from a Greek word that means entrust. It actually was used of making a deposit in a a bank. Just like we put money in a bank for safekeeping, what this verse says is we're to put our soul into God's hands for safekeeping. We are to entrust ourselves to him, not hold any part of it back, but give it all to him. This is the pattern that Jesus left for us. If we are to follow in his footsteps, we follow Jesus in this, who uttered no threat, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, it's easy to entrust your life and the life of your loved ones to God when life is going well and all things are good. But the Lord wants us to entrust our lives to him even when we are suffering according to the will of God. We believe that God knows what he's doing when we are happy and we are doing well. But when we're suffering and hardship comes, it challenges our understanding of God and our relationship with God. It's hard to entrust our lives to God. Especially when the suffering is so unjust and a consequence of living obediently to Him. Peter does not exhort us to try and figure everything out. He just says this. Just give your heart to Him. Entrust your heart to your faithful Creator and continue to do good. And I find it interesting here in this last sentence. He says, entrust your heart not to the Lord or to to God. He says, to your faithful Creator. Creator. Now, why does he say that? Well, as Creator, God is sovereign over all creation, including you and I and everything in our lives, including our trials and suffering. And he is faithful to sustain his creation and fulfill his good purpose in his creation. And he'll be faithful to sustain us and fulfill his good purpose in us. Even when we can't see why, even when we can't understand, even when we don't know what he's doing. We just need to, like Jesus, entrust ourselves to Him. So, you know, don't be surprised when you suffer for loyalty to Jesus. Rejoice in the current blessing of His presence, of the Spirit of glory and of God resting upon you and His future joy. And until that day that we see Him and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your Master's joy. Until that day, keep entrusting yourself, Peter says, to your faithful Creator. He made you, He will keep you, and one day He'll bring you safely home. That's the promise that we have. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness in our life to keep us. Thank You for Your faithfulness to make us more like Jesus. Thank You for Your faithfulness to increase our joy and make us even more glad at the day that we stand before You when we give an account before You of our lives. We pray, Lord, and I pray for everyone in this place that that would be such a day of joy. We know that our salvation will not be in question for Christ bore our condemnation once and for all. But You care how we live this life. 
And you want us to live it with faithfulness and loyalty, so much so that you'll bring us to a place where you reward us for that one day. And I pray that our reward would be full. I pray that we would find our greatest delight in you, Lord Jesus, that we would treasure you above everything else in life. And in that, find life and life more abundant. I pray that for every person here this morning. In Jesus' name.